This episode was produced in Pedro Studios. Whoa, 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 whoa. How do you do that with your voice? And by studios, do you mean a microphone and a couple of pillows? If for some, the answer to both of those questions is ask no questions, hear no lies. Let's just move on with today's episode. Today we're going to be speaking about blood clots. What, the derogatory term that Jamaicans use? No, like PE. Physical education, why would we be talking about that? No, Ifosa, we're going to be speaking about pulmonary embolism. Come on, bro, how am I supposed to know that? shouldn't use abbreviations, you must be clear. Shortness of breath is the commonest presenting symptom of pulmonary embolism, so I think it's important to have a good approach to this condition. So we've adapted this approach from pocket medicine. This approach is based on the pathophysiology. This can be divided into seven broad categories, namely airway obstruction, parenchymal disease, vascular disease, increased resistance to chest wall expansion or diaphragmatic expansion, stimulation of receptors, a decrease in the oxygen carrying capacity, and psychological conditions. To further simplify this, just imagine you're looking straight on at a person. In the center of their chest, apart from their heart and great vessels, you have the airway, under which you have airway obstruction. This would have asthma, COPD, and bronchiectasis. If you move a little bit further laterally, you have the lung tissue, so parenchymal disease. Under here, you could have pulmonary edema and interstitial lung disease. Within the lungs, there's also blood vessels, so vascular disease, under which you can also have large vessel and small vessel disease. Large vessel disease, you'll have pulmonary embolism, and under small vessel disease, pulmonary hypertension or vasculitis. Under chest wall and diaphragmatic impairment, you can further break this down into pleural disease, chest wall, diaphragm, neuromuscular disorders. Pleural disease, you'd have a pleural effusion or pleural fibrosis. And chest wall or diaphragmatic disorders, kyphoscoliosis, and increased abdominal growth. Now we're thinking a little bit more systemically. So chemoreceptors can be stimulated. And what would stimulate this would be hypoxemia or metabolic acidosis. Then you have your decreased oxygen carrying capacity. And under this category, you'd have anemia, methemoglobinemia, and carbon monoxide poisoning. And to have a holistic approach to the patient, one mustn't forget about neuropsychiatric conditions such as anxiety, panic attacks, depression, and somatization. Meet Dolores, a 67-year-old female who's HIV negative. She presents with acute onset of shortness of breath. The shortness of breath worsened over four days and told was no longer tolerable, and the patient presented. Initially, the shortness of breath was graded as MRC3, and on the day of examination, it was MRC5. There was associated chest pain, which was exacerbated by breathing, but there was no cough. There is no background medical history and no ethanol usage. She does, however, have a 12-pack year history of smoking. There is no significant family history, and there is no history of recent travel, immobilization, or surgery. On examination, she has a tachycardia and a tachypnea. All other vital signs are normal. Respiratory examination shows that there is a localized pleural rub on the right-hand side, as well as coarse crackles that can be heard on the same area. Other than that, there are no other findings. All other examination findings are normal. There are a few important things to take note of with regards to this case. Firstly, she presented with shortness of breath, which is the commonest presenting symptom in pulmonary embolism. This coupled with chest pain, which is pleuritic in nature, because it's worse on inspiration, is also highly suggestive. It is also important that she has a risk factor which is smoking. 
Risk factors such as prolonged immobilization, recent surgery, as well as family history were excluded in this history. We would, however, like to know whether or not this patient is taking any hormonal replacement therapy or if she has a history of DVT, pulmonary embolism, or malignancy. A great deal of the differential diagnosis for pulmonary embolism was covered in the approach given earlier, but other things to consider include a myocardial infarct, pericarditis, congestive cardiac failure, a respiratory tract infection, and musculoskeletal disorders such as costochondritis. So today we're feeling quite generous, so we're going to be handing out approaches like Oprah. So we're going to give you an approach to confirming or excluding the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism. So you look at a patient who you highly suspect to have pulmonary embolism, such as those who have neo-worsening dyspnea, chest pain, or those with sustained hypotension with an unexplained cause. So you would take that patient and assess whether they have a high clinical probability of having pulmonary embolism. You would use the WILES criteria to do this. So we found a mnemonic from internalized medicine that is quite handy in remembering the criteria for the WELL score. So the mnemonic is don't die, tell the team to calculate criteria. So all the D's have three points, the T's have one and a half points, and the C's have one point. So again, don't die, tell the team to calculate criteria. The first D is DVT, and that gets three points. The next D is a diagnosis other than pulmonary embolism is unlikely. Moving on to the T's, which are one and a half points, the presence of a tachycardia, then there's being immobilized for three days, having had an operation in the last 30 days, having a history of previous thromboembolism, such as pulmonary embolism or DVT in the past. Then moving on to the C's, which are one point, you have coughing up blood, which is hemoptysis, as well as the presence of a malignancy, so cancer. Having a score of more than 6 gives a high probability of having a pulmonary embolism. A score of between 2 and 6 is intermediate probability, and a score of less than 2 is low probability. So once a patient has been classified into high, intermediate, or low probability, there are various special investigations that can be used to confirm this diagnosis. So on the ECG, you'll have a sinus tachycardia, features of pulmonary hypertension such as P. pulmonale, which is a peaked P wave, as well as features of right ventricular strain. Right ventricular strain is where there's ST depression and T wave inversion in the leads corresponding to the right ventricle. So these are the right precordial leads V1 to 3, sometimes V4, as well as the inferior leads 2, 3, and AVF. On ECG, there's also the classical pattern of S1, Q3, T3. Before you move on with that, can you just explain what exactly you mean by S1, Q3, and T3? So in that case, you'd have an enlarged S wave in lead 1, which you're not normally expected to see. And in lead 3, you'll have an enlarged Q wave and an inverted T wave. Okay, thank you. That makes a lot more sense. A chest x-ray can also be done, but it usually doesn't give enough information and is usually normal. One can also do a serum D-dimer, which is a breakdown product of fibrin. D-dimer has a very strong negative predictive value, so if it is negative, pulmonary embolism is unlikely. However, it can be increased by various other things such as stroke, myocardial infarction, or malignancy. So if it is positive, one needs to investigate further. Ultrasound of the lower limbs is looking for the presence of a DVT. However, if there is no DVT present on ultrasound, this doesn't exclude pulmonary embolism. A ventilation perfusion scan is an investigation which uses nuclear medicine to compare the airflow and blood flow in the lungs. 
CT pulmonary angiography, MR pulmonary angiography, and formal angiography can all be used to directly visualize the thrombi. CT pulmonary angiography is currently the method of choice amongst these three. There are specific diagnostic algorithms that can aid in diagnosing pulmonary embolism. They are, however, resource and facility dependent, thus we felt they are beyond the scope of this podcast. The signs and symptoms of pulmonary embolism can be classified under small or medium pulmonary embolism, massive pulmonary embolism, and multiple recurrent pulmonary emboli. For small and medium pulmonary embolism, patients will commonly present with pleuritic chest pain and dyspnea. Hemoptysis also occurs in some, but usually develops three days after initial onset of symptoms. When examining these patients, they will be tachypneic, have a localized pleural rub, coarse crackles, and in some cases there may also be a pleural effusion present. Their cardiovascular examinations are usually normal. Patients with massive pulmonary embolism can commonly present with sudden collapse with severe central chest pain, may be shocked, pale and sweaty, sometimes may even present with sudden death. On examination they are usually tachypneic, tachycardic and hypotensive. They may also have a raised JVP, right ventricular heave, a gallop rhythm and a widely split S2. There are usually no abnormal chest signs. Patients with multiple and recurrent pulmonary emboli usually have progressive dyspnea over weeks to months with weakness, syncope on exertion, and occasionally can present with angina. And they usually have signs of pulmonary hypertension, such as a right ventricular heave and a loud P2. We now move on to the risk factors. And for the ease of remembering, I think we should divide it into two categories. Risk factors that are patient-related and risk factors that are procedure-related. For patient-related risk factors, we include things such as age above 60, a history of venous thromboembolism, immobility, underlying malignancies, pregnancy, estrogen therapy, obesity, hereditary thrombophilic state, inflammatory bowel disease, HIV, and autoimmune diseases such as antiphospholipid syndrome. The next group we said is procedure-related risk factors, and these include the duration of a procedure being done, the degree of tissue damage, so especially in surgeries such as orthopedic or trauma surgeries, these carry the greatest risk. The degree of immobility following surgery. Side note, which is why doctors always want to get patients to mobilize. And finally, the nature of the surgical procedure. For example, lower limb orthopedic surgery and neurosurgery carry a great risk of causing pulmonary embolism. Pulmonary embolism is the third most common cause of CVS-related disease after myocardial infarction and stroke. Thromboembolism usually arises from the deep veins of the legs or the right heart, but it can rarely arise from the mesenteric veins, arm veins, or cerebral veins. It's a very common finding in autopsies in patients with subclinical PE. Of those that clinically manifest, 10% are fatal. Moving on to pathophysiology, we can go back to our good friend Virchow and his triad. This triad consists of endothelial injury, blood flow stasis, and hypocagulable states. To finish off the pathophysiology, we must understand when a pulmonary embolism occurs, there is a ventilation-perfusion mismatch, where the lungs are still being ventilated, but they are not being perfused. This leads to the creation of an intrapulmonary dead space. With an intrapulmonary dead space, there is impaired gas exchange, and over time, the non-perfused lung stops producing surfactant. We can all appreciate the fact that when there is no surfactant, that there will be alveolar collapse, and this will lead to hypoxemia. With the reduction in cross-sectional area of the pulmonary artery, there is an elevation of the pulmonary arterial pressure 
and a decrease in cardiac output. The area of the lung that affected can eventually become infarcted. We now move on to the management. With regards to management, you need to risk stratify your patients into hemodynamically stable or hemodynamically unstable. With hemodynamically unstable patients or patients with massive PE, you can treat them with initial thrombolysis, which can be mechanical or pharmacological. Mechanically, you can do mechanical thrombolectomy. With pharmacological methods, you can use streptokinase or tissue plasminogen activator. This is followed by anticoagulation once the thrombus has been cleared. For stable patients, you initiate anticoagulation therapy. You start with low molecular weight heparin on the first day, and this has advantages over unfractionated heparin because it has easier dosing and it does not need to be monitored. You would use unfractionated heparin if you've done initial thrombolysis or if the patient has renal impairment. Low molecular weight heparin works on antithrombin and this inhibits factor 10. On day 2, you can start a vitamin K antagonist such as warfarin and to remember what warfarin works on, you can remember the phrase vitamin K antagonists were born in 1972 and CNS. So the 1 is actually 10 and then you remember that it works on factor 2, 7, 9 and 10. It's important to realize that warfarin is initially prothrombotic. This is because its initial effect is on protein C and S transiently. This leads to a prothrombotic state before it starts inhibiting the rest of the factors, where then its anticoagulant effect will then be able to take place. You give your anticoagulant therapy for 5 days until your INR is within therapeutic range of 2 to 3 for 2 consecutive days. You can then stop your heparin treatment. For patients with reversible or time-limited risk factors, you continue your treatment for 3 months. In patients with unprovoked DVT and all patients with PE, you have a great risk and you continue warfarin for 6 to 9 months. Patients with idiopathic or recurrent phenothromboembolism or continued risk factors, you'd give treatment for an indefinite period. Prevention can be divided into primary and secondary prevention, where primary prevention is modifying risk factors in patients who are at risk of having a venothromboembolism such as DVT and pulmonary embolism. So this would involve avoiding long immobilization, cough compression, and in patients who are about to undergo surgery or undergoing long hospital stays, giving prophylactic low molecular weight heparin is advised. Patients would be advised to stop smoking, and for those traveling on long journeys, it is advised to regularly move your limbs. Secondary prevention is in patients who have already had a DVT or pulmonary embolism. This would involve long-term anticoagulation therapy, as mentioned by Farai earlier. That wraps up today's show. Thanks so much for listening. Make sure you like and comment on our Facebook and Instagram pages. Stay tuned for next week's episode, which is going to be a special one. Please tell your friends, family, everyone you know. We're going to keep making medicine as simple as possible. But not more simple than that. <laughs>